If you've got a Bible, would you grab it and turn back to the Gospel of Mark? We were there last week, and we'll be there again tonight. And we're going to be looking at a few more episodes that preclude the cross, which we'll talk about on Friday night, and the resurrection, which we'll talk on Sunday. So today is what we call Palm Sunday, the beginning of Holy Week. And uh, if you're on our email list, you, you might have read the note from me about really engaging this whole week with your faith, with thinking about the days leading up to the death of Christ and then on the third day, his resurrection from the grave. Uh, in the life of a Christian, this is an important week as we really try uh, to meditate on the truth of, of these historic events that changed everything. So I'd really encourage you to do that. But, but last week and this week, we're looking at the days actually which are leading up to the final days of Christ because we're asking the question, what would... Jesus do in his very last pre-death or pre-resurrection days. Because what we do in our last days tells us a lot about what we think uh, is the most important thing. So, that's what we'll be looking at again today is another side of the coin of what Jesus did in his last last days. So, um, would you pray with me and ask God to, to be with us tonight? Father, we... We need you. We come before you. We know that uh, we do not see perfectly, that we need our eyes, the eyes of our hearts, enlightened, open to see what is truly valuable in this world, what is worthy of our time, what is worthy of our energy, what you have called us to, where you have called us, to whom you have called us. We pray, Lord, that you would give us fresh eyes, fresh sight to know that better tonight, to know how to spend our days well as we look at the Lord's last days here Uh, before his death. So we pray, fill us with the knowledge of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So who here, and I I want you to raise your hand because I'm very curious, who here knows who George Herbert is? Does anyone know who George Herbert is? Just a little. Okay. Well, this is great. Today is going to be truly educational for you. We're going to spend a lot of time talking about George Herbert. Herbert. Now, George Herbert, he lived a while ago, born in 1593, died in 1633, and he lived in England. That's, does anybody know where England is? <laughs> I just kind of want to see where we're at here. Okay. All right. Let's cross the pond. Uh, not Bellevue, just a little bit further east. Okay. All right. And, uh, George Herbert was something of a prodigy. When he was 11 years old, he began to write um, essays, which would later be published when he was 18 years old. And here's the kicker. If you're like, oh, I used to write essays when I was 11, he was writing them in Latin. Does anybody know what Latin is? (laughs) Okay. It's a great language. It's hard to speak. Okay. So, So this guy was something, he's a smart guy. Uh, he went, to Cam- went off to Cambridge University, um, excelled there, actually then uh, became the Cambridge orator. And this was a prestigious position. The orator was the person who was in charge of drafting and then publicly uh, speaking all of the 
public speeches of the school. And so it's a very prominent position, a very public position. Um, obviously, he was looked on with great admiration and, and was having a great career. Uh, but as he's rising up through the ranks of uh, the English elite, uh, he felt a tug on his heart. He felt the Lord calling him back to a promise that he had made when he was a young man, when he had first gone to Cambridge, 17 years old, he had made a promise to his mother, and his promise was to serve God. Okay, so some of the back story of George Herbert. So he began to follow this new path, this path that was not of fame but of obscurity. At age 33, he finally became an ordained priest in the Church of England. And then at age 36, he was given his first parish, his first church, to pastor. And it was in a small town called Bemerton, England. You heard of Bemerton? No. Nobody's heard of that. It's almost as obscure as Bremerton, Washington. Bemerton, England, small, nameless, nameless parish, where he served for three years until he died of tuberculosis just prior to his 40th birthday. So how in the world do we know the name George Herbert? Or at least how do I know the name George (laughs) Herbert? That's a great question. He never passed, the church was never more than 100 people How in the world do we know the name George Herbert? Well, it's because of 167 poems that George wrote that he never published while he was alive. In fact, the only reason we have these poems is because in the last weeks of his life, he knew the end was coming. He called a friend at a a neighboring parish to come visit him, and he gave him his memoirs, these 167 poems, and he told him, he said, if these are of any value to you, I ask that you share them. If not, he said, I want you to throw them into the fire. Well, his pastor friend read the poems and they were of great value. And they've been of great value to the world for the last 500 years. And if you talk to people that know a thing or two about poetry, they would say that George Herbert is one of the greatest, if not the greatest, Christian poet that ever lived. That's George Herbert. And what's so interesting is that he was just doing something that he loved to do. He wasn't writing poetry so that he might get published and be well-known. He was writing poetry because it's what his heart longed to do, and he didn't even know if he was any good at it. So let me read you uh, a few things here about George Herbert. In fact, I'm going to actually read you the quote, uh, or the letter that he uh, gave to his friend. He said this, Sir, I, I pray, deliver this little book to my dear brother, Farrar. 
And tell him he shall find in it a picture of the many spiritual conflicts that have passed between God and my soul. Before I could subject mine to the will of Jesus, my master, in whose service I have now found perfect freedom, desire him to read it. And then, if he think it may turn in advantage of any dejected poor soul, then let him make it public. If not, let him burn it. For I and it are less than the least of God's mercies. Of course, Herbert's friend, Nicholas Ferrer, published later that year in 1633 under the title The Temple. And the 167 poems walk the reader through life with God into the temple and towards the glories of Christ. And what's so interesting about these 167 poems, or at least one of the things that's quite interesting, is when you think back to the vow that George Herbert made to his mother. George was, of course, in the high courts of England. That's what you would have been in as the orator of Cambridge University. You were amongst the elite of the elite. But he chose to become a lowly country priest. When he was 17, as I said, he wrote a letter to his mother. And I think it bears repeating that he, um, he loved his mother very much. In fact, he's, fam- he's famous for, for saying this about mothers, he says, one good mother, one good mother is worth a hundred schoolmasters. That's a famous George Herbert quote, and I most definitely agree with it. But in his letter to his mother, George famously lamented this. He says, quote, the vanity of those many love poems that are daily writ and consecrated to Venus So few are writ that look towards God in heaven. Then came his vow. That my poor abilities in poetry shall be all and ever consecrated to God's glory. So he made that when he was 17, before he went to when he just got to Cambridge, before he became an order, before he came to the high courts of England. He made that vow that he might use his poor abilities in poetry to bring God glory. And what's so interesting about the temple, these 167 poems, is that they keep this vow in a very radical way. In fact, not a single lyric in any of the 167 poems of the temple is addressed to a human being or written honor of one. He writes all 167 poems as a record of his life with God. John Piper says this of Herbert, the reason Herbert writes with consummate skill is because his subject was consummately glorious. The subject of every single poem that George Herbert ever wrote is in one way or another about God. So why do we bring George into the conversation today? Why do we bring his poetry into the conversation today? Well, it's because George Herbert models for us what Jesus modeled himself in his very last days on earth, which is this, that the chief end, the chief 
job of a human being, of, its, of his energy, of her energy, of his or her creativity, are ultimately for the worship of Jesus Christ, God the Father, and God the Spirit. George Herbert is unmatched in his ability to bring Jesus worship. And what we'll see today is that Jesus was very welcoming to worship, especially in his last days on earth, because he sees it as ultimately valuable and worthy of our time. Last week we looked at how Jesus takes time in his very last days on earth to stop and serve a blind beggar named Bartimaeus. And he serves him. He gives him whatever he needs and wants. He asks Bartimaeus for his sight back, and Jesus gives it to him, both his physical and spiritual sight. But then we see, tonight we'll see this, is that Jesus, in his last days, he gives to Bartimaeus, but he also receives worship unto himself. And so I want to talk about this important juxtaposition between service and worship. Both are necessary and important to the Christian life. Both working together, service of others and the worship of Jesus. So I want to try to show you why and how true this this really is by looking at a couple stories in the Gospel of Mark. So if you're there, we're going to get there. We're going to look at two episodes today. And the first episode is going to be in Mark chapter 14. This is the first of our episodes in which we see Jesus in his last days receiving worship. It's a story known as the anointing at Bethany. It's a very interesting story. So pay pay close attention. Mark 14.3 says this, And while he was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard. Very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over Jesus' head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was that ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and, you all, and whenever you want, you can do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed, in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Sure enough, what she has done is being told in the memory of her. And what she, do, what she has done, Jesus says, is a beautiful, it's a beautiful thing. Now here's what's going on. 300 denarii was about a year's wages for an average day laborer. And she breaks open this, this nard, which is like a perfume, an oil, and pours it over Jesus. And these disciples, these people that were watching, can't understand how this could be the best use of that very expensive good. Because, right, they've watched Jesus and they see that He loves to serve. 
And so they ask, how could this be the best use of that? Why don't we just sell it and we could serve so many people? And Jesus says what she's done is a beautiful thing. Now it's so important to, to just see the picture going on here. Those who are indignant, they're not way off base. They realize. They realize that a good could have been done. But they've missed another good, which is the worship of Jesus, the King, who is about to go and give his life for his people. You see, it's not wrong to want to serve. It's not wrong to want to serve the poor. It's just short-sighted to realize that's the only part of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Jesus reminds us that. She has done a beautiful thing. There's a time for both, a time for service, and a time for costly adoration of King Jesus. You hear that? It's very important. It's very important what we do here on a Sunday evening. It's very important what we do in our fellowship groups. It's very important to worship the king. It's a beautiful thing. Now, a similar example of this, do you remember the story of Mary and Martha? And uh, Martha's in the kitchen and she's just cooking and cooking and, and, and serving. And Mary, uh, Mary's out at the feet of Jesus learning and listening and being with Jesus. And you think, well, Martha's doing all the work. Mary needs to get her acting gear. And what Jesus says is, you're missing the point. I'm the point. Don't miss out on me while you're serving others. Now, why is that so important? Why is it so short-sighted to miss, miss out on worship? Well, because Jesus is God. Jesus is God incarnate. And if God is standing in front of you, it is right, it is proper In fact, we should be able to do no other but to worship Him. It is a beautiful, beautiful thing. Because worship is experiencing God. Now let me me flip back now to our good man who everyone is so familiar with, George Herbert. And let's actually look what George Herbert has to say about this. Worship as experiencing God. This is really powerful, a really powerful reminder of what, of what worship is. So, um, George Herbert was a parish priest. He had a job to write sermons and do what priests and pastors do. Uh, interestingly, we have zero of his sermons recorded for us in history. We have none. We don't know what he did for his day job. All we have is his poems. And so, what you realize just kind of when you understand the life of George Herbert, is that poetry, or writing poetry for Herbert, it was not merely recording his past experiences with God, uh, and it wasn't part of his job. Um, It was actually writing poetry for him was actually a part of experiencing God in that moment. And so it was in the making It was in the seeing and the savoring of God in the moment that these 167 poems came out. So it's communion with God that is happening in the act of worshiping. And for Herbert, it was in the writing. For others, it can be in the singing. It can be in uh, the talking about King Jesus. Um, And there's, there's one poem in particular 
that really highlights this truth. It's called uh, quiddity. And it really gets at the essence of this idea that for Herbert, writing poetry was a way of him experiencing God. And, and so what you'll hear, so you have to listen closely. Poetry, if you're not used to it, can be hard to understand what he's saying. But what, what Herbert is saying here is that the verse or the lyric in and of itself for him is nothing but in the writing of the verse and the lyric, it's everything. Okay, so listen to his poem here. It says this, God, a verse is not a crown. No point of honor or gay suit. No hawk or banquet or renown. Nor a good sword. Nor yet a lute. It cannot vault or dance or play. It never was in France or Spain, nor can it entertain the day with the great stable or domain. It is no office, art, or news, nor the exchange or busy hall. But, here it is, but it is that which, while I use, I am with thee, and most take all. Nobody knows what and most take all means. (laughs) Scholars have tried to figure that out for years. But that last line, but, it's none of these things. It's none of these great things, a lyric. But, it is that, while I use, I am with thee. So you see for Herbert, what he's saying through this poem, uh, and, and he's known as one of the great worshipers of all time, is that for him, it is in the process of writing that he actually sees God more clearly. It's in the process of writing that he savors God, that he communes with God. And so it is with our worship. It is not just recalling some past experience, but is actually in the moment worshiping God. And there's nothing more valuable to Herbert or to Jesus than that worship. So, worship as experiencing God. Now, why does God want us to worship Well, of course, he wants us to experience him. And we see in the story of Bartimaeus that God oftentimes has to heal us, has to open our eyes before we can start worshiping him. Okay? And we see this again and again in Scripture. Ephesians 1.8, we just finished the series, or 1.18, we just finished the series in Ephesians. It says this, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which He has called you, that you see the riches of His glorious inheritance. And so you see this pattern, that Jesus serves us, that we might worship Him. Jesus opens our eyes, that we might see Him. Jesus opens our ears, that we might hear Him. Jesus opens our mouth that we might sing to Him. There's always this rhythmic one step in front of the other when it comes to the way Jesus lives and moves and has His being. And so He serves that we might worship and we might follow that pattern. We might serve so that others might worship King Jesus. So there's the first episode that I wanted to to highlight. The anointing at Bethany. Even the absurd, costly act is worth it because nothing is more worthwhile than worshiping Jesus. The second is what we celebrate on Palm Sunday, which is the triumphal entry. So if you want to turn back with me to chapter 11, we will see Mark record these events for us. 
This is where we get the term Palm Sunday. Mark 11, starting in verse 1. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem, remember Jesus is going into Jerusalem, near the Passover, knowing that he will fulfill what he was sent to earth to do, which is to die for the sins of the world. And as they drew near to Bethpage and Bethany and the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two of his disciples and said to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately as you enter it, you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, Why are you doing this? Say, The Lord has need of it, and will send it back here immediately. Don't try this. (laughs) Don't just steal somebody's bike and say, The Lord has need of it. I'll bring it back, because you won't. But they did this, and they untied it. And and some of those standing there said to them, What are you doing untying this colt? And they told them what Jesus had said, and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and threw their cloaks on it, and he sat on it. And many spread their cloaks on the road, and others spread leafy branches. So we get Palm Sunday. Could have been palm branches. And those who went before and those who followed were shouting, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest. And he entered Jerusalem and went into the temple. And when he had looked around at everything, as it, had all, as it was already late, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. So if, you, if, if you've never heard this story or... or don't understand what's happening here. This was actually prophesied in the Old Testament that the Messiah, that the coming king, would come into Jerusalem riding on a colt or a donkey. And the people would sing Hosanna because they recognized that this person coming in was the Messiah, the one that would save them from the evil age. And so this is what is happening now. Realize here that Jesus is very aware of what's going on. In fact, he's the one telling them to go get the colt. He's telling them that he wants to be worshipped as the king. Now, you, you, you might have read last week where we see Jesus say this in verse 43. Uh, excuse me, 45. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And so you might ask the question, well, this seems a little vain, that Jesus would go tell his disciples to bring a donkey, that he might ride into Jerusalem being recognized as the king, the coming Messiah. But see, service and worship aren't at odds. Jesus did come to serve and not be served, but he did come to be worshipped. And so Jesus very clearly receives worship, and it is not antithetical to Jesus' humility. He is on a donkey, and he does have palm branches. Now, think of this in comparison to the other political figures that were worshipped in the day. When we worship Jesus, we're not worshipping because he's got the nicest ride or the pomp and circumstance. We worship him because of who he is in and of himself. So worshiping Jesus is proper while worshiping, for instance, Caesar, the emperor of Rome, 
is not. You see, understanding that we were made to worship Jesus unlocks for us the humility of this moment. Because you see, doing anything that we were made to do, even if it's to worship another person, is proper and right because it flows with our design. And when we do things that are in line with how God created us, it actually ends up for our good. So worshiping Jesus is right and proper and brings Him glory, but it is also for our good. Anytime we do what we're made to do, it ends for our good. You might have experienced this in your own life. When you find that thing that you were made to do, it ends up for your good. I experienced this when I went and watched Sarah Carnes play. And she just nailed her character, Irene, and she was doing clearly what she was made to do. And it was for her good. And it was for our good. As we got to see things done as they were designed to be done. So anytime you do what you're made to do, it turns out for your good, your good and the good of others. The same is true of worshiping Jesus. So could you imagine, I want you to put yourself in that moment. Could you imagine being in that part of the world 2,000 years ago, near the roadside where this was happening, where the fulfillment of this prophecy of the Messiah coming into Jerusalem to save His people was occurring Wouldn't you give up anything and everything to go be there in that moment? To go be there and experience Jesus riding in to Jerusalem. Could any experience be better than that? Should you give up the opportunity to somewhere, to someone in need, serving them, to be there on the roadside Worshiping Jesus as he entered the city. The answer is yes. You should give up even the chance to serve someone as Jesus has commanded us to do in order to be there and watch him ride into the city and to worship the king coming. Because Jesus says worship is really important, it's good for you. Because it's what you're made to do. It's not a waste. It doesn't mean that service is not important. It just means that when you get the chance to worship Jesus, you should take it. It's a beautiful thing. Again, I just want to make that so clear that it's not worship over service. It's both. But so often, I think, in our day and age, we tend to think worship is invaluable. Or sorry, not valuable. When it's really invaluable. We maybe tend to overweigh service and we forget to worship. Jesus reminds us it's both. And we're made to do it. So we have these two two episodes of Jesus clearly wanting and desiring and telling people, worshiping me is very important. Now, of course, when we turn this on ourselves, (laughs) we realize that for us, 
It's not receiving worship that is ultimately important, but it's giving worship unto Jesus. So the Christian life then is informed by mimicking Jesus, except in that way where we give him worship, we don't receive it unto ourselves. And it becomes like this two-step, where we step with one foot, service, and then we step with the other foot, worship. One foot, service, one foot, worship. One foot, service, one foot, worship. And if we don't learn this two-step, and we become out of balance, what we really become is ineffective for the mission of Jesus. Because what happens if we only learn to walk with one of these feet is that we just start walking in a circle. Just like one foot service, one foot service, one foot service, one foot service, and look, I'm right back where I started. I never went anywhere. And we see Jesus modeling for us in his last days this two steps as he goes towards the purpose for which he was called. Serving, allowing himself to be worshipped, all in his last days. And so we want to do both. We want to have balance. We want to accomplish the ends God has for us. And actually, when we see this properly, what we realize is that service and worship do accomplish the same thing in the end. They actually serve each other. They actually complement one another quite well. Let me explain. When we serve others, we are, in fact, worshiping Jesus. Because we are doing exactly what He did. Because He did it. You've probably heard the quote, imitation is the greatest form of flattery. And so when we imitate Jesus, we are bringing Him attention. We are worshiping Him. My dad always tells the story of finding me, uh, or of a, of a neighbor finding me in their bushes when I was just a young lad, like 16 or something. No, I think I was younger than that. Uh, urinating in their bushes. And they came up to me, what are you doing? And, um, and I said to them, well, I'm going to the restroom. <laughs> and they said, why are you doing that in our bushes? And I said, well, this is what my dad does. <laughs> my dad taught me to do this. Imitation is the greatest form of flattery. But when we do things and serve others because we saw Jesus doing it, we bring him Attention, we bring him glory. And we bring him this attention and this glory because he deserves it and because it is our worship. Likewise, when we worship Jesus, this is very important, when we worship Jesus, we are in fact serving others. This one, you say, what? This one might be harder to understand. When we worship Jesus, we are actually serving others. If you get nothing out of this message, get this out of this message. When we worship Jesus, we are in fact serving others. Here's why. Because there is nothing better, nothing more valuable, nothing 
that our fellow man needs more than turning their attention to Jesus. Nothing is more important in their eternal existence than turning their attention to Jesus. And so, if we go back uh, to this picture of, of being near Jerusalem at the time when Jesus was coming in and he's riding on a donkey, just, just imagine yourself being there on that Palm Sunday and there's all these neighbors and people around you that see you running off because you've heard that Jesus, the Messiah, is coming in. And they're going to ask you, where are you going? What are you doing? And you're going to say, I'm going to worship the King. The King is coming. The Messiah is coming into Jerusalem. And so what happens is, when we choose to go and to worship Jesus, we are actually forcing people to ask the question, why? Why am I not doing this? What is going on? And so our worship brings the world, brings our friend, brings our enemy's attention to Jesus when it otherwise wouldn't have. And that is a profound service to them. Because they would not have heard about Jesus coming unless they saw you running down the street to get there. And oftentimes when we worship Jesus, we will experience the same questions that that young woman experienced when she anointed Jesus. People are going to ask us, why in the world would you waste that expensive perfume? Why in the world would you give 10% of your income? Why in the world would you give up your Sundays? Why would you give up a weeknight? Why would you give up your sex life for Jesus? And by our actions, by the way that we worship, we are going to tell them because it's worth it. Because there's actually nothing greater that I could do. And I pray, I pray, if you, if you consider yourself a Christian in this room, that at some point in your life, you will have a friend or a family member come up to you and say thank you. Thank you for the inexplainable, for the sometimes irrational, for the excessive ways that you chose to worship Jesus. Because without that, if you had not done that, if I had not witnessed you do that, I never would have honestly considered Him for myself. Thank you for serving me by worshiping Him. I hope that you experience that some point in your life. It's not going to happen unless the ways you worship Jesus are like George Herbert, or like the woman with the perfume, or like those who ran to the roadside to see this man coming into Jerusalem on a donkey. Jesus shows us in his last days, in his last hours, what's truly important in life. Jesus shows us that it's not enough just to serve without worshiping. He, sh- he shows us that it's not enough to just worship without serving. But together, serving others, giving of yourself, and worshiping Jesus, giving yourself away to God, this forms the most important parts of the human life. And what's, what's so amazing, what's so glorious about this 
is that every man, every woman, every child, every race, every ethnicity, every culture, every socioeconomic stature can do these two things. Everyone can experience, like Jesus did, the most important parts of life. It's not out of reach for anyone. And I hope you come back on Friday and you come and you see one more thing that Jesus did as we look at Jesus giving up His life to be the perfect, spotless sacrifice, taking on Himself our sin and the wrath that's due to that sin. That's actually something that we cannot do. That's something that we could not do. Only Jesus could do it because He is the Son of God. So I hope you come back and we look at that and we worship God and we thank God and we feel the weight of what He's done on that last day. But we can do these two things. We can serve others and we can worship Jesus. And I hope that we get really, really good at that. So I want to close here with just one... You guys are going to love George Herbert after tonight. I'm going to read you one more George Herbert poem. And this is a beautiful one. Uh, Herbert believed that God rules all things by His sacred providence. He believes that everything speaks of God. He believes that God put man in the world to see that truth and to savor that truth and then to say it. He said that's actually what mankind was made for. So he calls us in this poem secretaries of God's praise. Which is to say, and you'll hear it in the poem, no one else can do, no other part of God's creation does what we can do in worshiping and praising God like we can. So we have to do it. It's what we were made to do. So I'm going to read this just as a closing for tonight. O sacred providence, who from end to end strongly and sweetly movest, Shall I write, and not of thee, through whom my fingers bend to hold my quill? Shall they not do thee right? Of all the creatures, both in sea and land, only to man thou hast made known thy ways, and put the pen alone in his hand, and made him the secretary of thy praise. Would you pray with me? Father God, we... Thank you that you have made us your secretaries of praise. We, we, we just confess, Lord, that we don't often accomplish this task well. That, that too often we drop the ball when it comes to giving you the praise and the glory and the honor that you deserve as the Creator of all things, as the Redeemer of all things, as the Savior of all things, God, we pray that we would become everything that You've created us to be as worshipers put here to worship You. God, I pray that, that, that as we worship well this week, this holy week, that people would be drawn to You, that their eyes would turn to You because they see us worshiping Jesus that they can't understand why we would go to such lengths to praise His name, to why we would go out of our way to knock on their door 
and invite them to praise Jesus. God, that the way we worshiped would be so confusing to people that the only response that they would have would be to consider, is Jesus really who he said he was? God, I pray that for myself. I pray that you would give me a deep longing and hunger like you gave George Herbert to sing and to write and to speak of your glories. Pray that for my friends, my brothers and sisters here, Father, that you would give us eyes to see, to savor your goodness and your wonder and your love. And the only reason that we can even start that process is because of your son Jesus. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Every week we come to the Lord's table and celebrate the death of King Jesus. That when he walked into the gates of Jerusalem, he wasn't coming to take over the government. He wasn't coming to rule with an iron fist. He was coming to give up his life out of love. He was coming to lay down his life for his friends. He was coming to be a sacrifice for our sin. So we celebrate that every week because Jesus told us to. He told his disciples, he said, take this bread. This is my body broken for you. Eat in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. He said, as often as you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you proclaim, you praise, you bring glory to my death until I come again and eat with you. And he is coming again and he's, he's coming back and he'll come into the gates of Jerusalem once more and people will sing Hosanna, only this time they won't stop singing. They'll never stop singing Hosanna. It's going to be a glorious day. Until then, we remember his death and we remember that he died for us. And so if you're trusting in Jesus, if you've given him ownership of your life, if you're choosing to follow Him, if you're choosing to serve others and to worship Jesus, then you come and you rip off a piece of the bread, the body of Christ broken for you, and you dip it in the cup, the blood of Christ poured out for you, and you eat it as a way of symbolizing your union with your Messiah, your King, your Savior, Lord Jesus. If you're not yet to that place where you can, can honestly say, Jesus died for me, it's okay to, to wait on this and wait till it can be an act of faith. But maybe tonight, tonight is the first time where you truly believe that Jesus is riding in to your life to be your king. And you know what? The greatest news is that you don't have to wait. You don't have to jump through any hoops. You can simply pray and ask God to be your king, to ask Jesus to be your savior, and you can come and participate in this great reminder. So I hope some of you maybe do that tonight, and, and if you do, you come talk to me. I'll be standing up here. There'll be others talking, uh, standing up here that would love to pray with you. Send me an email. Find me afterwards. What are the next steps to following Jesus? So when you're ready, when your heart is full, when you're ready to savor the beauty of Jesus, come to this table and have fellowship with him.